is to admonish one another in these things. So not just to ourselves, but to every one of you, we need to encourage one another to rise over sin and fear and those cares or the worries, uh, probably a, a better word from taking whatever, whatever that was written hundreds of years ago to now. Joy to find in every station. That's hard to do, isn't it? There are some stations of life where joy is, seems absent and missing. Something still to do or bear as long as we're in this body, on this planet, despite the fact that we know full salvation, right? We still have something to do and oftentimes things to bear, sorrows and pain uh, and care for one another in the body. Okay, next one, Stuart. And then he, he shifts to up here, right? This is where we've talked about the battles won and lost so often. Think what spirit dwells within these. Not the spirit of the world. It's the spirit of the living God dwells within you. Think what Father's smile is yours. And the spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God, Paul says in Romans 8. Think that Jesus died to win the child of heaven. Can you not rest? Repine means rest. Can you not rest in those three truths? The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, what He has done for us. Will you rest in those truths? Will you let your mind dwell on those things when you're facing sufferings and trials and cares and worries? And then, I love the world to haste thee on from grace to glory. Well, sometimes I just want to stay here. Enjoy my family. I enjoy you. I enjoy the place that God has put us. And so I don't want that to haste on. And yet, usually when that is, is I've, I've loved the world too much and have failed to remember the glory that awaits us. Armed by faith and winged by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. Sometimes we need to remind each other of that truth. That we are moving from grace, which we experience now, to one day glory. Soon, that the urgency, soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. That's what we look forward to. That is our hope. That is our, uh, our purpose. That is our mission. And because that happens, soon there, there is a sense of urgency of what are we doing with today? Will we take up our cross today? Jesus, I and my cross have taken. Thanks, Stuart. We are in the middle of a, uh, a series in First Peter. We have, uh, begin chapter 4 today. So if you want to be turning there, and while he's doing that, remind you of what Peter is doing. The message of this book, which we've repeated again and again. Hope it sticks. Peter's writing to teach them based on what God has done, how to live, where they don't belong when they are facing difficulties. That's the message to us as well. Because God has done the same thing for us as He did for them. We need to know how to live today in a place where we really don't belong. And there's not a one of you in here, it's in some form or fashion or shape, that there are not difficulties in your life because of the fall. They may not be as harsh as what Peter's readers, readers were facing, or they may be worse. Regardless, we need to know how to live. And we talked last week um, about the fact that because we are blessed, then that allows us to 
and helps us to suffer. And this morning as we look at um, chapter 4, he's going to continue that vein um, and talk about why our current situation makes things different. So let me read chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him as ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to strengthen our hearts. We pray that your Spirit would open our ears to hear well, our mind to understand. Ultimately, that you would change our wills, that we would be like you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, he begins with uh, a command. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Rearrange the order a minute. Since Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves the same way of thinking. That means prepare yourself. Get equipped. Get ready. Right? So the first thing we need to do is we need to prepare. Well, how? Well, it says with the same way of thinking, and he's referring to Jesus. So prepare with the same mental processes that Jesus prepared with when he suffered. So question. What was, what was Jesus' mental attitude? What were the characteristics that allowed him to suffer? Talk to me. Okay, good. He was willing to do the will of the Father rather than his own. Good. How do we, do you know anybody, whether Will or anybody else, place in Scripture where we see that? Let's flesh that out. Where might we find that? Well, Jesus doing the will of the Father. That's how Jesus is able to suffer. Jesus doing the will of the Father. Where do we see that? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Yeah, those very words that that Will said, not my will, but yours be done. Good. What other attitudes or characteristics did he have? The last table, uh, washing the disciples' feet. Okay, good. Service. So he was willing, so that attitude of, of service allowed him to suffer. Good. What else? He did. He associated with the weak of this world. Y'all are y'all been reading up my notes, haven't you? Y'all are good. Uh, the first passage I want to look at that details very specifically what Jesus did is Philippians chapter two. So if you'll turn back there, Philippians chapter two. Beginning in verse 5, it's interesting, Paul uses some of the same ideas, same, again, the battle is up here, right? Having this mind among yourselves. Well, what mind? Well, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that mind that Jesus had. Who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we know that because of that, God exalted him. Those same three things that y'all just said are in that passage, specifically talking about how he was able to go to the cross. Right? So, first, he didn't take advantage of his position. He was fully God, and yet he was willing to associate, as Howard said, with us. He took he took on flesh. He didn't take advantage of his position in Christ, in, in being divine. He was willing to, to let go of the prerogatives of heaven. He embraced servanthood. Not just, okay, I'll, I'll go, and he mumbled about it, right, when he was serving. He embraced it. That was his mission. I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Embraced servanthood. And then he embraced obedience. He became obedient, not just, okay, I'll do what you say until it becomes uncomfortable. Not just I'll do what you say until something better comes along. Not until I'll do what you say unless you mess with my personal preferences. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we, that passage helps us, and so we have to ask ourselves the question. I need to, or not a question, I need to tell myself, I need to develop those characteristics. I need to not take advantage of my position. Well, oftentimes that position is just simply up here. I, I'm, I'm good. I deserve X. Maybe some of you, I've been well-educated or I've got the right job or I've got the right family or I've got whatever, and so therefore I deserve something. See, if we're willing to let go of any prerogatives that we may have, when suffering comes, we're not as put out. Because what suffering really is, is you're messing with what I think is important in life. That's what suffering is, whether that's physically or monetarily or emotionally. Right? We suffer when... Pride asserts itself. Or we suffer poorly when pride asserts itself. Uh, you, you can suffer well. But when we buck up against suffering, it's because we simply mean, I don't deserve that. Why don't we deserve that? Where is it written? Where is it written down that we don't? Oh, I know it's in the Constitution, right? Right? We've been endowed with these unalienable rights by our Creator of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where is that in here? I don't know what they were reading when they wrote that, that God endowed us with those rights. Where are we given the right to life in here outside of Jesus Christ? Where are we given the right to happiness in here? Where are we given the right to freedom in here outside of a spiritual freedom in Jesus Christ? Where is that? That's not true. We don't have those rights. Now, the country may give you those rights, but God doesn't give you those rights. They're not yours. And so when we suffer and we think, I don't deserve this, it's because we've been lied to. We think we do. Our pride gets in the way. I do deserve 
I do deserve to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. God doesn't say that anywhere. It's not in this book. His people often suffer because the fall brings that about in our lives. We need to embrace servanthood. See, if, if my focus is to serve you, then how can you make me suffer? I'm giving myself freely for you. You can't do anything. Well, no, but that's, I want to help you. I want to serve you. I want to give my life away to you. If, I'm, if I embrace obedience, if I embrace doing the Father's will, if that's what I'm after, then, then I know there's a reward, right? You can take everything away from me, but you can't take away heaven. You can't take away the Spirit. You cannot remove Jesus Christ from my life, no matter what you do to me. And if we allow those thoughts to percolate up here and bear fruit in our lives, then we can suffer like Christ. He's not denying that suffering is going to come. What he's saying is, how do you deal with it? He wants us to deal with it like Jesus dealt with it. Are there anything else besides uh, humility, we might say, for that first one, servanthood, obedience? Anything else that, that Jesus had as an attitude that allowed him to suffer? Look forward to the joy that awaited. Good. Stuart's not going ahead, is he? Mark's read my notes. Good. What else? He, he did. Right. Kind of goes along with that first one. I'm, I don't need it. Right? I don't need it. If I'm willing to give everything to somebody else, then it doesn't really matter what you do to me because I'm not looking for praise anyway. Right? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. There's one more odd one in there that I don't particularly like, but... Um, long chapter 11 about all the, the heroes of the faith and how they walked with God despite persecution and suffering. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? And he says, looking to Jesus. Set our mind on Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, as Mark said, Endured the cross, despising its shame. So the first thing is, he looked to what one day would be. The restoration of not only his life, but I think also the restoration of fellowship with the Father, but I think also the bringing in of the people that he would redeem. You read through the first chapter of Ephesians and it's hard to deny that God delights in His people and, and to just say that that joy set before Him was the Father like misunderstands the character of God. Part of the joy that was set before Him was the redemption of His people. Of, 
of being able to fellowship not just with the Father for eternity, but with you and I for eternity. Like if we separate that out and say it was just about the, the, the reunion of the Father and the Son after the cross, we've missed other truths in Scripture. So for us, it, it is ultimately the joy of being with the Father and the Son and the Spirit for eternity in heaven. It is our glorification, but it's also in being with the family of God. Do we have that mind? Because if my hope ultimately is in the future, right, what, what can man do to me? You can't kill that. You may kill this, but you can't ruin the rest of it. Then the second thing was that he despised the shame. He's not denying that there's shame and suffering. There is. There's shame and suffering. But Jesus says he despised it. In other words, it's, it's not worth worrying about compared to. I'm, I'm shoving it aside. He knew there was going to be shame. He was going to hang naked on a cross in front of a bunch of people and die a painful, humiliating death and people were going to make fun of him and hurl insults at him. There's a lot of shame there. We're not denying that suffering brings shame. Jesus says, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to think so little of that, you're going to think I despise it. He despised the shame that he experienced. So I think if we take those five things, and there are others, I'm sure, but it's a good place to start. Maybe you should take a moment right now and say, okay, God, where, where, is, where does my pride get in the way of, and, and I think that I'm, I don't have to suffer, how can I be more of a servant? How can I be more obedient? How can I set my mind more on what's to come? Where am I worried about being embarrassed or shamed? Take a moment right now, where you are, just in the quietness, and pick one of those five things. Holy Spirit, how can I develop in my life one of those attitudes that was paramount in Jesus' mind that allowed him to suffer? And the second part of that process is you might need to, to 
ask someone in this room to pray for you over the course of, of the next week and month and year. That's a, it is a lifelong process as we develop the attitude of Christ. He finds someone saying, would you pray for me about this? Would you help me? Maybe there's some passage of Scripture you need to memorize and dwell on and think and let them kind of run through your head on a regular basis about servanthood or humility or obedience or joy. But you've begun that process. May we finish that in the days and weeks to come and, and move on to another level of maturity in our walk with Christ. Because we will suffer and we want to suffer well. So that's how. It's how we prepare. We prepare by having the same mental processes as Jesus had as he got ready to suffer. Why do we prepare? Second thing, why do we prepare? He says in the end of verse 1, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Mm, That's a little tough to wrap your mind around. Um, in the context of what he's talking about, he doesn't mean that sin is gone away once you've suffered. Because who in here has not suffered? That's good, no hands. We, we all have in some form or fashion. Who in here has completely gotten rid of all your sin? Right, okay, so we know that. So that's not what he's talking about, right? That doesn't. And if you read through, I mean, you read through, we know the apostles continued to sin even though they suffered. It's clear from Scripture. Uh, Another way to, to translate, another way to think about that is, he who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. Here's the thought process. If I'm willing, and he's talking to people that were going to be persecuted for their faith. If I'm willing to undergo hardship or persecution because of who I am in Christ, what he's saying, if, if that's your attitude, then... Doesn't that mean that you're willing to walk with God instead of walking in the flesh? He's not saying that sin has gone away. This, what this really is is a word of encouragement to those who are suffering. Right? You're willing to do that for your relationship with Christ. And the only way that you really can do that is walking in the Spirit. And we know from reading earlier that when we walk in the Spirit that sin goes away, right? We've talked about that before. That's the only way to get rid of sin is to walk in the Spirit. When we sin, we necessarily are not doing that. And so really this is a word of encouragement. Those who have suffered have made a decision, he's saying. You know, I'm done with sin. I'm done with the human passions, and I'm choosing to live for God. That life of suffering that these people are undergoing necessarily means, you know, I'm done with that. And he even says that. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Right? You lived that life, and you, not only did you live that life, you know what? You've really, you've gotten all that you can get from sin. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? Right now, I can confidently say to everybody in this room, You've gotten all that you can get from sin. Now, the power of sin is, you know what? I can give you something else. I can make you feel a different way. I can do something else for you. But you've gotten all that you can get from sin. The time passed. Whatever, And he didn't know the ages or the situations of all of his readers. And yet he confidently said, the time is past for you to carry out the desires of the Gentiles. You've done all that can be done. Sin promises you more. That's how it works. 
But we also notice the way addiction works, right? You always need a little more to get what you felt back there, right? So I've got to do, I've got to do a little more to get what I felt back there. Sin always promises something, but it can never deliver. We're deceived into thinking that this will make me happier, richer, better, more joyful, less worried, less hectic. Doesn't work. And then he lists several things that apparently his readers were involved in. Most had to do with embracing society for all that it could offer. Living in sensuality, which is throwing off the restraint of society's norms. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Whatever goes, right? He said, you were a part of that. Did it do you any good? Any kind of suffering is going to test our faith. And so the question is, well, but I'm not undergoing persecution for my faith. I don't think anybody in here is doing that. You may be. You may be being maligned by friends or co-workers because of your faith. But most of you aren't to the point that they probably were. So what does it look like in your life very practically? How do we... How do we think through how this applies to us? What does that, that mean? I'm, I'm, most of you probably weren't in sin to the extent that these people were as far as from an outside perspective, but we begin, need to begin to think, okay, what about from God's perspective, right? Sin is sin. And I'm not undergoing persecution for my faith, so how do I know if I'm walking, how do I know if I've put it aside? Well, it goes back to that, the first part of that, that passage, right? When you are walking in humility and servanthood and obedience and joy, and when difficulties in life come along, that's a good measure indicator. How do you respond to the difficulties of life? Whether it's persecution for your faith or not. That doesn't mean we don't grieve over death and sorrow. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how, do you respond in selfish ways or do you respond in a God, um, in a God response of still, building, still being willing to serve, still being willing to obey, still being willing to exhibit humility. And that even though there may be sorrow and pain and hardship in our life, is there in the back of our minds, still the joy that is set before us. Just allow life to be a, help you as an indicator. How am I walking with God? This week, when something happens that is unexpected, that you suffer for, a hardship, a difficulty, anything from a flat tire to a death, how do you respond? What is your response? And that will give you an idea. Am I still living in the flesh or am I walking in the Spirit? And thanks be to God that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we have grace. So when we stumble, we can get back up and go, okay, I didn't walk with God in that moment or those moments or that day. It 
we, we prove our faith, not to God, certainly. We prove our faith to ourselves when we are walking in the Spirit in the midst of the difficult times of life. So how we suffer, we take on the attitude of Jesus. Why we suffer, because it's a, it's a testimony to the faith that we already have in one sense. And what are we suffering for in one sense? Um, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Um, we prepare We prepare because people are going to be surprised that you don't act the way they want you to act. And that surprise often leads, leads to rejection. So he's talking to people who've changed radically from non-believers to believers. Okay, Some of you may not have had a radical change. Some of you may have had just a slight change. Some of you may have been a long time, and most people that know you know you as a believer, right? But as you continue to walk in the Spirit, your life will continue to change, and people will, will look at you funny if you really are walking in the Spirit. Believers and non-believers alike. And so the reason we prepare is because people are going to be surprised that you don't do what they want you to do. You know what, that's, that's a desire of, of men, and I'm, I've just put that aside. It's not important to me anymore. I'm not interested in that behavior, that lifestyle, that activity. I have something else that I'd rather spend my time doing. And so they'll be surprised. So we prepare because that surprise can be a little disheartening. It can hurt our feelings. Uh, it can make us think, well, maybe I am missing out. But often that surprise will turn to rejection because if I'm living one way, the people that are watching you are living another way, and you claim that this is the way, then that necessarily is a pronouncement of at least some sort of judgment on them, whether, you're, whether you ever say anything or not, right? The way you live speaks judgment to the world, necessarily. Because if you're choosing to do something different than me, whether you mean to or not, I'm going to think, well, are you saying I shouldn't do that? Are you saying I shouldn't go out and get drunk anymore? Because you're not. You, you've found something and you're not. Is that? And so surprise, the, if, if people logically follow that down, is going to turn into rejection. They didn't always do that because people aren't always logical. <laughs> but if we follow that, that surprise necessarily is going to turn into rejection. Are we prepared for that? The way we're prepared for that is, I'm willing to serve you, I'm willing to be obedient to God, I'm willing to be humble. I'd rather please God than please men. I don't, I don't need your approval for the way that I live and what I do. The second thing, so we prepare. We prepare our minds. The second thing that we do is we, we've been called to proclaim something. We read about that in, in 1 Corinthians. For this is why the gospel was preached. And by implication, this is why you're going to continue that on. Even to those who are dead, that though indeed, in, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
Right, because those people that malign you, he says, are going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So we proclaim truth to people. We're called to proclaim truth to people, as Paul said, to be ambassadors, to reconcile the world to God, because they're going to face God one day. Every person that you meet today and tomorrow and the day after that and the week after that and the month after that, they're going to stand before God one day. So we proclaim truth to them. Whether they want to listen to that or not, everybody has to answer to God. And then the second thing, for this is why the gospel was preached. And the key to this is the tenses. This is why the gospel was preached to those who are dead. He's not talking about preaching to the dead. He's talking about preaching to those who are alive, who have died, so that even though they might have been judged, maybe persecuted, killed according to men's desires, even though they might have been judged in the flesh, they ultimately are going to be judged by the Spirit. In other words, if we've preached and they've accepted, it didn't matter what happened to them in the body. God's going to restore them. God's going to bring them to life. They may have been judged in the flesh the way people are, but they may live in the Spirit the way God does. So we proclaim truth because everyone's going to stand before God and we want them to live in the Spirit. We don't want physical death to have the final say in life. And so we prepare our minds and we proclaim the truth so that people are changed. So that death is not final. So that those who cause our suffering don't cause our ultimate suffering. So that even if we're judged according to men's standards and they don't like us and they kill us for our faith, there's a higher judge who will bring us back to life. That's what Peter's calling us to do, to prepare our minds and to proclaim the truth. And the only way we do that is because we have the perfect model, the perfect example in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your abundant grace and your mercy. Thank you for the truth that you have redeemed us and made us your own, that there's nothing that man can do to us. God, help us to grasp that and believe that because it sure seems like there's a lot of things that men can do to us. Not only physically, but emotionally. They hurt our feelings. They wound us deeply. They cause scars that, that carry on in this life for years and decades. And I confess, God, it's sometimes hard to believe the truth that there's nothing that man can do to us. Help us have the attitude of Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant He became like us and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. For us, help us to believe that, to grasp that, to rejoice in that. And then God, help us to prepare our minds for the week ahead. That when difficulties and trials and hardships and annoyances come our way, we handle them with grace 
and truth and humility and love towards those around us, even if it's those around us who are causing the annoyances and the suffering and the difficulties. We depend upon you. We will not and cannot do that on our own. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing again?